Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. For most of us, the physical doors of the church have been closed for almost a full year now. No coffee and donuts in the lobby, no handshakes and high fives and hugs with our friends, no hanging out in the lobby, no kids playing games or sitting in circles and hearing about the deep love that Jesus has for them, no singing together in one big room. If someone had told me back in January of 2020, a year ago, that this was going to be our reality a year from then, I wouldn't have believed it. The physical doors of church being closed is the last thing that most of us want. And I would guess that most of us believe it's the last thing that God would want as well. Well, I'm actually not so sure. Did you know that there was a time in Scripture where God actually chose to close the doors of the church? Not because of a pandemic, but actually because of the way people were treating one another. It happens in the very last book of the Old Testament. It's a a short book. It's only four chapters long, but it contains a word from God through a prophet named Malachi. And this word from God, it rocked people's worlds at the time. Here's what he says, Malachi 1.10. How I wish one of you would shut the temple doors. Shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept your offerings. Why did this happen? God goes on through the next four chapters to give them a list of things that they have done that has brought this on themselves. The first thing is greed. They were hoarding everything for themselves instead of giving back to God and giving to those in need around them. The second thing was unfaithfulness. They were forsaking their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. They were pursuing dishonest gain and not worrying about how it affected the people around them. The third thing was injustice. They were underpaying laborers, God says. They were stealing. They were oppressing widows and orphans. They were depriving immigrants of the things that they needed. All of these are listed there in Malachi's grievances that God has against these people. And then lastly was pride. These folks looked down on other people, even considered themselves too good, too important to obey the things that God had asked them to do. It seems there are some things which are much more important to God than religious rituals. Shut the doors, he says. I am not pleased with you, and I will not accept your offerings. And then, silence. For the next 400 years, the people hear nothing from God. I think it's safe to say that at this point, they are probably desperate for a new word from the Lord. He has been quiet for so long, and the last word that he spoke was not an easy one to hear. They're ready for something new. They wait for more than four centuries, and then one day, God's word finally comes but it's not like anything anyone had expected. In the beginning, the word already existed. 
The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. This was not the kind of word from God that humanity was accustomed to. They were used to getting kind of the lowercase w kind of word, right? Prophecies or writings, but this was something new. This was a capital W word. And this word from God, it wasn't spoken, it was born. Because when God wanted to reveal himself to the world, he didn't write a book or speak a prophecy, he became a person. When God wanted to fully reveal himself to humanity, he didn't write a book, he didn't speak a prophecy, he became a person. In the stillness and in the darkness, God's word came. No festivities and no fanfare, just a no-name Hebrew girl from a town that no one wanted to be from, surrounded by her blue-collar husband and his impoverished family in a little town called Bethlehem, giving birth to God in the flesh. As John said, this word became human and made his home among us. That's what we just finished celebrating, right, at Christmas. It's this incredible thing called the Incarnation. Now, incarnation is a concept both familiar and foreign to most of us. You see, if you have some kind of spiritual background, if you've been around church a little bit, no doubt you've heard that word incarnation before. But wrapping our minds around it, what it actually is, what it truly means, something else entirely. God became human. The creator became a part of the creation. The Apostle Paul says it like this. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. Jesus is God in his fullness. He's not a symbol sent here to represent the likeness of God. He is not a prophet like Malachi sent here to teach us about God. He is God. He is Emmanuel, scriptures say. God with us is what that means. He is the incarnation, God in human flesh. We are officially at the halfway point in our year in the life of Jesus. In the incarnation as a concept, we have discussed repeatedly over the last few months as we've been walking through our first three teaching series inside of this year in the life of Jesus. The first one was called Kingdom Come. This series looked at the events leading up to Jesus's birth and his kind of early years of life as well. The second series was called Going Public. And this series covered Jesus' transition from a very private early life to a very public ministry. He also preaches at his hometown synagogue and gathers his team of disciples with him, and they would stand with him, walk with him for the next three years, even into his death and resurrection. And then we just finished up at the end of 2020 a series called Sermon on the Mount. This series covered Jesus' longest and most important sermon. This teaching showed his first century audience and then all of us who have studied it since then exactly what this kingdom of God that Jesus talks so much about looks like and how humanity is supposed to function inside of it. Well, today, this morning, 
we make a distinct transition in the life of Jesus as we move from studying his teaching to studying his actions. We've been looking at what Jesus taught about God's kingdom, and now we're going to look at how he demonstrated God's kingdom through everything from huge miracles with big crowds to everyday interactions with ordinary people. This morning, we begin a new series called Kingdom Incarnate, the Incarnation. Now, you may be thinking, wait, I thought all this incarnation stuff was about the birth of Jesus. Well, that's true, it is, but it's so much more than that as well. The most basic definition of incarnation is simply embodiment. Now, it can be a physical embodiment, right? We just talked about that, like God putting on flesh as Jesus, or it can be a metaphysical embodiment. Let me give you an example. My wife, Amy, is the embodiment of empathy. She feels and cares for other people on a deeper level than anyone I have ever seen. It's a truly amazing thing to behold. Now, Amy is not literally empathy in the flesh, right? She's a person but she embodies empathy nonetheless. This is what Jesus did with the kingdom of God. He embodied it in every sermon he preached and with every interaction he had. Jesus brought God's kingdom to earth, and he has called us, every single Christian, past, present, and future, to do the same. That's why when he taught his closest followers how to pray in what's become known as the Lord's Prayer, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. He was bringing God's kingdom from heaven to earth. But Jesus didn't just teach us how to embody God's kingdom. He showed us too. To paraphrase a little statement that my friends and I used to like to say in middle school all the time, Jesus didn't just talk about it. Jesus was about it. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at some of the time when Jesus most clearly embodied God's kingdom. We'll examine familiar stories like Jesus calming the storm and feeding the 5,000. We'll also talk about some stories that maybe you've never heard before, like Jesus healing the widow's son or defending the prayer of a tax collector. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you have church background or not, you probably already knew kind of the basic plot points concerning Jesus, right? You probably know that Christians believe he was born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem and that he died on the cross and then rose from the dead. But you may not know all that much about what happened in between. It's as if many of us have memorized the first and last chapters of Jesus' biography but failed to understand the rest of the book. We're familiar with his birth and with his death and resurrection, but shockingly unfamiliar with his life in between. There's actually a very specific historical reason for this, and I'm going to tell you about it because I think it's both important and fascinating. From about 150 years after the resurrection of Jesus to the end of the 4th century, okay, so from about 150, 180 A.D. until about 500 A.D., five major Christian creeds were written. This includes the two which are the most popular creeds still to this day, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Now, creeds are basically like doctrinal explanations or belief statements. They kind of enumerate the essentials of what somebody believes. And in this case, they enumerate the essentials of the Christian faith. Most of these five were developed through a series of meetings called councils. 
and then they were voted on and ratified by early church leaders. These councils often got pretty intense, right? Okay, so just imagine if you've ever been to one, a particularly raucous church business meeting, right? You, you had the kind of potluck dinner beforehand, and then you went into the sanctuary, and everybody was giving their reports, and there were some issues maybe about the type of music or the color of the carpet or something like that, and it got a little out of hand. That's kind of how these councils sometimes were. But what came out of them? was and is vitally important for Christianity. These are important things, the creeds. And they have stood the test of time. In fact, almost 2,000 years later, our doctrinal statement here at Restore is basically just a modernized version of the Christian creeds. But while they are incredibly important in so many ways, these creeds have one huge glaring problem. They don't mention the life of Jesus at all. They talk about his birth, and they talk about his death and resurrection. But there's no mention of the rest of his life. But really, it's not the creed's fault. Because in the first few centuries after the resurrection of Jesus, no one disputed his life. Even Christianity's most ardent critics didn't claim that Jesus wasn't a real person, or even that he didn't do miracles. What they disputed was the incarnation and the resurrection. The fact that Jesus was God and the fact that he came back from the dead. These were the things that they went after. So naturally, that's what the creeds addressed. Why waste time defending something like the life of Jesus that no one is attacking? Now, while this strategy makes sense to us, a very unfortunate byproduct is that Christians throughout the generations have lost sight of the life of Jesus. It's not that we have overemphasized his birth, death, and resurrection. I don't think that's possible. Those things are foundationally important. It's that we have severely underemphasized his words and his works during his life. Renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who I really believe is one of our greatest living theologians, wrote a fantastic book on this topic called How God Became King, The Forgotten Stories of the Gospels. In it, he says this, The great creeds, when they referred to Jesus, passed directly from his virgin birth to his suffering and death. But the four Gospels don't. Or to put it another way around, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all seem to think it's hugely important that they tell us a great deal about what Jesus did in between the time of his birth and the time of his death. In particular, they tell us about what we might call his kingdom-inaugurating work. That's what I was talking about when he brings the kingdom of heaven to earth. The deeds and words that declared that God's kingdom was coming then and there in some sense or another on earth as it was in heaven. They tell us a great deal about that. The gospels do, but the creeds don't. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together referred to as the gospel accounts of Jesus, or simply the gospels for short, tell us about the words and deeds of Jesus as he embodies, as he incarnates this kingdom of God. The gospels, you see, are not like the creeds. They don't exist simply to prove theological assertions about the divinity of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. As N.T. Wright goes on to say in the same book, the point of the gospels is not whether Jesus is God, but what God is doing in and through Jesus. What is this embodied God up to? I love that. 
That's the question we should be seeking together as Christians. What is this embodied God up to? Because if we are going to call ourselves Christians, which literally translates to little Christs, then we need to understand who Jesus really is. And if we claim to follow him, then we need to know how Jesus lived his life. We can't skip from the birth to the death and resurrection. There is life in the life of Jesus. To that end, my goal throughout this entire series and really throughout this entire year in the life of Jesus is to impress upon us that everything happening in between Jesus' scandalous birth and his miraculous resurrection, these events and actions and words and deeds are not incidental. They are not on the periphery. These stories of Jesus' life are not only central to the biblical story, they are actually central to our lives as well. Because while this de-emphasis of Jesus' life by the creeds may have come about in a completely innocuous way, the results, my friends, they have been catastrophic. Because when we ignore the words and deeds of Jesus, it becomes really easy to call ourselves Christians while simultaneously rejecting everything Jesus stood for. Simply believing in God And performing religious rituals is not what God has called us to. At the beginning of this message, we saw how God reacted when people only focused on those things but ignored what following God was actually supposed to look like. Shut the temple doors, God said. Jesus gave a similar rebuke to the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things, justice, mercy, and faith. Jesus says these are the more important things of being a Christian, but we only know that when we move beyond the bookends of his story and actually study his life. See, when we falsely believe that Jesus was simply born to die and ignore his entire life in between, we are setting ourselves up to claim a Christianity that doesn't remotely resemble its founder and its namesake, Jesus Christ. The fact is, Jesus wasn't just born to die. He was born to live and to love and to serve and to incarnate, to embody the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I want to close with a quote from the late Rachel Held Evans who says all this better than I ever could. If wherever you are, maybe if you're listening to this at home or you want to just kind of sit, maybe even close your eyes and just let this soak over you, I think it'd be really beneficial. Here's what she says. Jesus came to die, they often say, referring to a view of Christianity that reduces the gospel to a transaction, whereby God needed a spotless sacrifice to atone for the world's sins and thus sacrifice Jesus on a cross so believers could go to heaven. In this view, Jesus basically just shows up to post our bail. 
His life and teachings make for an interesting backstory, but prove largely irrelevant to the work of salvation. But Jesus didn't just come to die. Jesus came to live, to teach, to heal, to tell stories, to protest, to turn over tables, to touch people who weren't supposed to be touched and eat people who weren't supposed to be eaten with to break bread, to pour wine, to wash feet, to face temptations, to tick off the authorities, to fulfill scripture, to forgive, to announce the start of a brand new kingdom, to show us what that kingdom is like, to show us what God is like, to love his enemies to the point of death at their hands, and to beat death by rising from the grave. Jesus did not simply die to save us from our sins. Jesus lived to save us from our sins. His life and teachings show us the way to liberation. Jesus didn't just come to die. He came to show us how to live, how to be human, how to embody God's kingdom here on earth. That's what he did. And he's called each and every one of us to do the same. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the incarnation. That when you saw a world filled with hurting and broken folks, you didn't just turn your back away. You didn't just look down and say they deserve it. God, you put on flesh and you came to earth. The word became human and made his home among us. But your incarnation didn't just stop there. You embodied this kingdom of God, this new and right way to be human, to live and treat each other, to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. You not just taught us what that was like, but you showed us God. We are so thankful for Jesus. I pray boldly, God, that me, that our church family, and that your capital C church here and around the world would not stop with the bookends of Jesus' life, would not just talk about the birth and the death and the resurrection, but spend so much more time talking about the way Jesus lived, the words that he spoke the works of his hands and his feet, the miracles that he did, the people that he hung out with, the religious leaders that he rebuked, the down and out sinners who were called unclean that he touched and embraced and held and loved and welcomed in. Let that define Christianity. Let that define our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.